Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Grund. Kirk and Anthony are here. You know, guys, we have uh, a few movies to talk about. We are sort of uh, at the finale, I would say, of the summer of blockbusters. Uh, mm-hmm. We've we've still got some films that are coming out in August, but I would argue that not a whole lot of people care about those. We've sort of reached the, the pinnacle regarding the Internet's reaction to films this week. So. Sure. That's really all it is. And and none of these films that we're talking about have anything to do with superheroes, believe it or not. Considering <laughs> how much we talk about superheroes and their films and all that, these are three non-superheroes. There's, there's, there, there's some IP in there, but mm-hmm. like not superhero stuff, which is kind of intriguing. It is, yeah. It's uh, kind of funny to think about when we talk about box office. We talk about that a lot on this show and... And uh, and we you know whether or not certain box office numbers are meaningful. And at the end of the year, I would predict that in the top five, you are not going to see a Marvel movie in the top five of the box office of the year, unless the Marvels absolutely blows things out of the water, which I don't predict it will. But uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. We, I think we're moving on a little bit from the superhero era of dominating uh, Hollywood, which is a good thing. I'd like to see some more stuff get made. Yeah. And with that being said, let's go ahead and so that we don't break off too much of the mold, let's talk about some things that happened right before the sort of actor strike that's unifying Hollywood. We got some superhero casting for Superman Legacy, and it was a whole <laughs> bunch of people. <laughs> we got to talk about this, right? Just real quick. I guess we do. You're right. Okay. So we got three people on one day and then an an additional person the following day. Um, So we got casting news for, uh, I'm going to butcher this man's name, uh, the Darwin from First Class, right? Eddie (laughs) Gathegi, Gathegi, that's the gentleman's name. Yeah. We've also got uh, Isabel Merced as uh, Hawkgirl. Sorry, he plays Mr. Terrific. She plays Hawkgirl. And then we also had Nathan filling in as Green Lantern of the mm-hmm. Guy Gardner variety. Mm. Um, so we've got some some pretty decent B, C, D, depending on your opinion, listers of the Justice League here uh, in the Superman movie. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you're the Green Lantern expert here on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Just a little. Uh, what are your thoughts on specifically Nathan Fillion as Guy Gardner? I think this is perfect. Um, I, I'm not saying that there couldn't be other people to play Guy Gardner, for sure. Um, and I know he's a Hal Jordan fan favorite. He has been for a very, very long time. He's voiced the character yeah. multiple times. I, I get all of that, and I don't disagree with it. However, knowing James Gunn's writing and Nathan Fillion's acting abilities, and especially thinking of like him in Guardians 3, it's mm-hmm. it's almost like that's like a little taste of a what if of like can you imagine Nathan Fillion playing an asshole, and it's like boom there you go, <laughs> you know, he's yeah. gonna play a jerk and you know everyone has their own opinions on Guy Gardner whether they legitimately like him or they they think he sucks or whatever, I'm definitely in that sort of wheelhouse of this guy is somebody that isn't a bad guy, but you kind of do want him to get his teeth punched in. So the idea of Guy Gardner interacting with Goody Two-Shoes Superman, you know, basically trying to, like, show up the most powerful superhero in the business is amusing mm-hmm. to me. I, I like that idea a lot because people think of Hal Jordan as this hot shot, you know, sort of ego-driven womanizer. And Guy Gardner can be that 
amped up to 11. Not to say that he can't back it up, but, you know, people think of Guy Gardner, they think of, you know, him getting punched by Batman, right, in the Justice League International book. That's kind of the the view a lot of people have. So I I think it's a really good casting choice. I can I can perfectly hear him playing that character and it's just it's just fun to know that we're getting Guy Gardner in a in a movie. <laughs> you know, it it yeah. really feels like there's no rules that this is gonna be a DC universe that can have anyone. We're not playing the usual game of you have to do origin and then set up and then do this and then part one and then part two and blah blah blah. It's like we we've already have with this and then the Hal and John show, we've got at least three Green Lanterns working in the universe. It's an established world. Mm-hmm. That's that's really cool. So I I mean as a Green Lantern fan, that's exciting to me. And then you know Mister Terrific and Hawk Girl, those are perfect sort of Justice League member stand-ins. You you know without it being too big, they perfectly represent the sort of variety of the Justice League. You've got like an intelligent guy with sci-fi tech, and then you've got you know, woman with wings, like it's, it's enough to kind of give a, like, oh, there's a lot of different superheroes in this world. So I think those work too. Yeah, I agree. Um, It's kind of amazing to think, just going back to, just going back to Nathan Fillion, uh, remember that trailer that, you know, that fan trailer that someone put together, that's like 14 years ago that that was made. (laughs) Another one, yeah. Yeah. And like, then, you know, here we are with this, yeah, like he, he obviously as you said voiced the character as well and you know here we are and he's playing a different Green Lantern obviously but, but still he's, he's cast in a movie as this yeah I mean it feels like uh, if you've been following that fan casting of just Nathan Fillion as a Green Lantern it's it's a, a long time coming I guess um, the, uh, the Daily Show uh, episode if, if anyone ever watched that little web series with uh, Tim and Sam Daly mm-hmm um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I like the idea of this Superman movie, you know, having other superheroes established in it and Gunn has been pretty adamant about it's not to set up other movies. It's not basically, yeah. it's not what Batman versus Superman did. Um, and, uh, this is just, these characters exist in this world as well. Not that they're going to get their own movies, but they're around and I think yeah. that's interesting. So yeah, it's it's setting up a true DC universe, and with the focus still being solely on Superman. I think he described it as like you know this this character has two worlds. It's Clark Kent who interacts with Lois and Jimmy and Perry, and then there's Superman who interacts with Green Lantern and Hawker Girl and the Justice League and mm-hmm. and those characters. Um, and then the following day, we also did get casting of Anthony Kerrigan as Metamorpho. Yeah. Um, which is interesting casting for sure. Um, obviously, you're you're familiar with him because you've seen Barry. Um, yes. So out out of the two of us, <laughs> the, <laughs> the the Kerrigan expert, um, I guess purely on performance because I know you're not familiar with the Metamorpho character, but from the sounds of it, yeah. he's an actor. Yeah, I I vaguely know who Metamorpho <laughs> is, but I mean, yeah, he's a really good actor. So I'm just I'm kind of happy to see him uh, just get a, a role in a film like that, just because I like seeing actors that I like succeed, but. Uh, yeah, he's he's so good in Barry. He's uh, kind of everyone's like he's kind of the fan favorite character, because um, his performance is so charismatic and so out there. And uh, yeah, I mean he's another one that has been in tons of. This is something to talk about as well. Actors that get cast in movies have this history of being in DC TV shows as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, because 
like you know way back when when i was like did you know that amy adams lois lane in man of steel was in an episode of smallville and that was like a, a thing now these shows have been going on so long and there are so many of them that it's highly likely that you will cast an actor that was in an episode of the flash or arrow or legends of tomorrow or smallville or whatever so uh, or gotham which is you know the case <laughs> with uh with anthony carrigan is that he was uh, zaz in gotham and yeah. i think was also in an episode of the flash as a man who turned to smoke or something i think he played uh, mist just a you know dc universe villain mist right <laughs> fair enough um so yeah it's kind of funny that we're at that point as well where these shows have been going on for so long arrow is more than 10 years old now that mm-hmm. uh you know actors who are well known were in episodes of these now as well like uh uh elvis um austin butler austin butler thank you austin mm-hmm. butler was a, a villain in an episode of arrow where he ended up being a league of shadows member and uh, in the old run of our show we joked because he was a dj like oh he he you know he succeeded in his djing classes at the league of shadows um, <laughs> they taught those classes yeah so he yeah, could yeah. he could learn to blend into the modern world so they had the whole like turntable setup just razo ghoul just sitting there in his big chair just nodding his head like yeah <laughs> these beats are efficient <laughs> he does the he does the clap 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 impressive <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so and it's, Nathan Fillion, I guess, was in uh, uh, The Suicide Squad as well. He was yeah, TDK. further confirms this sort of reboot of the, the DC universe. Um, so, uh, and you know, I know some people are sort of have issues and have some confusion in regards to when does the reboot start, who's in it, what's going on, all that stuff. And I mean, I totally get that. Um, I understand wanting to have a little bit of continuity you know, something solidified to understand and, and go forward with. Uh, that being said, at this point in time, I'm only interested in, like, good movies. So, you know, whatever the, the case is for what's connected, what isn't, I, I really just don't have a, a personal preference at this point. Superman Legacy just has to be good. You know, um, Waller, I know it's going to have Viola Davis, and it's like, wait a minute, that's not the, the Angela Bassett from Green Lantern. Um, <laughs> that's what everyone's thinking. Yeah, I get the confusion, but she's really good as Waller. I'm sure the show will be good based off of everything that's been leading up into it. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. So I, I guess a question here, yeah. moving forward, because I have seen this brought up, and I would like to talk about the similarities, but also the major differences with it. Is the last time there was a strike, mm-hmm. there was an attempt to making a DC universe with a Justice League movie mm. that was fully yeah. cast it had you know costumes prepped and pre-vis and like they were about to shoot and obviously that didn't happen you know J- justice league mortal the george miller yeah. film uh which had a whole bunch of people like dj uh katrona and mm-hmm. uh, army hammer army hammer uh yeah. like a, a whole assortment yeah so like that was going to happen um and then you know, because of the writer's strike, but amongst other things, it didn't end up going forward. Now, I would like to address some of the other things that were happening. There was a, a, a sort of competing Batman film at the time. It was a, a little film called The Dark Knight. Oh, oh, The Dark Knight. Yeah, I've yes. heard of that one. 
Yeah, you may have heard of it. It's uh, pretty good if you like good movies. And so, like, <laughs> Warner Brothers saw that, and they went, oh, well, we don't need a Justice League with another Batman in it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we do have a current sort of solo Batman <laughs> series going on right now. The difference is that the director and the stars aren't outwardly uh, protesting the expansion mm-hmm. of the DC universe like uh, Nolan and Bale were for for Justice League and everything. Uh, this seems to be a bit more of a cohesive piece of, of the puzzle, mm-hmm. and they were already doing it to begin with. So, like, I do recognize that there are similarities with casting all these actors and writing these scripts and getting ready to shoot a movie during a strike. Um, that being said, uh, things are a little bit different right now, and not to mention... The, the guy who ran the company wasn't making the movie. Yes. You know, is James Gunn going to fire himself? I really don't see that happening unless something completely wild happens. Because um, I, I know people are talking about Warner Brothers and all these, you know, these DC bombs. You've got Blue Beetle coming out soon. It's like, oh, is Warner Brothers worried? And it's like, I considering they originally made that movie for streaming, I don't think they care. They haven't spent any money on the budget. So the, like, or the, the, the marketing. Marketing. Yeah. So nothing. like, if you don't spend any money, you don't lose any money. I don't think yeah. they care. <laughs> uh, after I saw uh, Oppenheimer the other night, uh, there was uh, when I went to the, uh, the train station to travel home, uh, there was four billboards in a row advertising The Flash. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. And then I, I thought, like, I wonder if I can even see this in cinemas still. So I, I went to try and buy tickets, well, not, not actually to buy tickets, but to see if there were sessions available. Um, and there was one session the following day. One session. <laughs> it's like, man, that was meant to be one of the big films of the summer. So, yeah, I think uh, right now Warner Brothers are just like, look, we're starting afresh. We got this other stuff left over. You know, I guess maybe they have some faith in Aquaman. Um, which they right. might be pushing back again. And that was meant to come out last year. So, Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I say who gives a damn about Aquaman because, you know, who cares? But it did make <laughs> a lot of money. So obviously Warner Brothers have, you know, some... They see value in it, but I do yeah. not give a damn about an Aquaman movie anymore. Like, especially when we're starting new and starting afresh with this DC universe. This is just leftovers, so... Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and I, I, I will say, as we wrap up the superhero talk here, when I saw Barbie, we did get a trailer for Blue Beetle. Um, mm-hmm. And I did hear a single child, when the trailer ended, he said, or she, it was a child. It's hard to tell sometimes with children. Sure. Yeah. Um, I did hear a child say, that looks interesting. And the whole <laughs> theater laughed. So uh, <laughs> we, we got at least one kid. We'll go see Blue Beetle, you know, one kid. So we got that. They get one down, a million to go. Don't worry, Water Brothers, you got this. Go get him, Zazlev. <laughs> okay, let's talk about real movies for real adults. God oh, damn yes. it. Let's. Uh, well, you know, uh, going chronologically, we got to step back a few weeks because uh, we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, it came out early July. Mm. This is the the latest, but not the last installment in the Mission Impossible franchise, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Unlike Spider-Verse, they stuck with their gut and and decided to call it Part 1 so that people know that when it ends, and it's... And to be fair, this one, 
much more of a solid ending than, say, Spider-Verse. It does not end on a literal cliffhanger, even though they are hanging off a cliff at one point. You, you, <laughs> you, you could potentially end it like that. Even though it's called Part 1, they do have a pretty solid ending. So uh, mm-hmm. people are excited for the next one. Uh, because, spoiler alert, this was a great film. It was. So, what a shock. I know, <laughs> but it was great. Yeah. Uh, the Mission Impossible films, I mean, you could argue that none of them are bad. Obviously, the second one is the one people don't like. But mm-hmm. um, I we've talked in the past about how each Mission Impossible film, I guess kind of leading up to the fifth one, do feel like a reflection of what action movies looked like at the time. Yes. That is that uh, has always been my key, is that every Mission Impossible is like a time capsule if you yeah. want to know what movies were like during that point. So I yeah, we are not fans of two. It's both I would say almost everyone's bottom of the list. Yes. But I I will defend it in saying that it is not a bad movie. You can still no, enjoy it. I, I think it's a, a a decent action film, but uh yeah, Great ending. I, Love the I, ending shot. But Dead Reckoning Part One, yeah, just a, a really good film. Everyone's talking about the stunts, obviously. That's what Mission Impossible films are kind of known for. You You kind of go in knowing that uh, he really did this. Um, so that is part of the fun. There's kind of a, a meta nature about the Mission Impossible films now where mm. you know this crazy man, Tom Cruise, is actually <laughs> jumping a motorcycle off of a, a cliff. And, uh, I mean, it's spectacular to see. And on top of that, it's a... An engaging story it's a it's still a good spy story on top of the uh, spectacle of the stunts and the action set pieces yeah um, yeah it's not a stunt show it is no, a, a movie no. with characters and plot and all those things mm-hmm. it's it's uh really well done um i had gone to sort of a an earlier screening we had discussed how what is you know openings anymore just because yeah. you have all these things across the world and early IMAX preview screenings that are open to the public and mm-hmm. it's it's pretty wild so yeah uh, Ray and I had gone to a screening Monday when the film came out Wednesday mm-hmm. and um, like before the film they just played a bunch of like featurettes and it was all just like explaining the the car chase in Italy and you oh, know wow. doing the jump off the the, the cliff and all that stuff. They kept showing us like the premieres, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was, which was awesome and quite irritating because I could hear Josh Horowitz, but I could not see him. And I thought <laughs> this is my opportunity to see that man on the big screen. And I only yeah. heard him. And I was, Aww. I was the only person in the theater. I'm sure that was, that felt robbed that I was like, I could have seen that face on the big screen. Goddamn, That would have been amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was the whole thing is that it was like a five to seven minute. I, I can't remember, you know, I don't, there wasn't a timer on the screen of them explaining of like, Oh yeah, Tom Cruise had to drive this, this little Fiat like one handed. And it's, it, it was really cool to see. Cause you're sitting here going like, wow, I'm about to see this in a movie. And then you watch mm-hmm. the movie and you see it all come together. And it's, uh, it was interesting. It was, it was interesting to, to see them basically give you a behind the scenes. It's like you said, people know going into it about, Oh, you know, I, I would say he, he's been doing them for a while, you know, uh, these these big, crazy stunts. Four, mm-hmm. you know, probably had the start of it, but five is yeah. when it started with, like, did you hear he's on the, a plane for real? <laughs> you know, yeah. That was, yeah. That's where it started this trend of, of what's he going to do, this big thing. Um, and so, yeah, with this one, with him jumping off the, the, the cliff on the, on the motorbike and everything, it's like mm-hmm. they want you to know that, like, this stuff is – 
you know, physical and real. And, you know, especially after watching the recent Indiana Jones, which was perfectly Mm -hmm. enjoyable for what it was. But Mm -hmm. you watch something like this and you're like, oh, that's right. This is how it it should be done. No offense, James Mangold. Sorry, sorry. But this is real. Especially when both films have a train sequence, like characters like yelling at each other and fighting on top of a train. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. We've kind of talked in the past... Actually, we probably haven't talked about it on the pod because a Mission Impossible film has not come out since we restarted this show. But True. um, The Mission Impossible films, since the fifth one, when uh, Christopher McQuarrie came on, these kind of feel like their own separate part of the franchise a little bit in terms of telling a... Uh, cohesive story that you can watch film by film whereas the Mm -hmm. others they all have an entirely different cast and everything it it sort of starts with the fourth one um but the the fifth one is really where that begins but at the same time it also feels like or it felt at the time like fallout was the culmination of all of the films that we had seen so far right then you get to this one and it feels really closely connected to the first De Palma film so <laughs> it's kind of interesting when you like if you put these on a mind map and you're like these link in this way and these link in another way and that's yeah that's interesting yeah I, I I completely agree it's it's been very interesting seeing the evolution to see how they maintained this franchise and obviously with with character beats and um, at one point we we establish a villain sort of predating the film series in a mm-hmm. way yeah. Um, which which really you know takes us back to a, a an older mindset. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, real quick on that, there has been talks that like they were going to do a whole de-aged Tom Cruise scene. Yes, um, yeah. where because obviously the villain of the film is personally tied to to Ethan Hunt. He's he's sort of like his uh, <laughs> his arch enemy <laughs> in a way that they sure. they set up this guy. Who it's like oh he's my my Joe Chill. You know he's my mm-hmm. he's my uh, Jack Nicholson Joker. Um, uh, <laughs> right. Funny because obviously he played Deathstroke in Titans, which I he doubt did. many people yes. will remember because he's he's good casting. He just did nothing in that show. Um, yeah. I felt that even more so watching this because he he still looks and sounds and kind of acts like a Slade Wilson should in this very film. <laughs> and I know people will say you know bring the the Batfleck movie back and the Deathstroke movie with. Uh, Flash Thompson from the Raimi films, um, <laughs> but you know, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna say give give uh, uh, you know Morales. this guy a, another shot at it because I think he's he's got it. But anyways, yeah, they were gonna do a whole DH thing, and they were like, well, sometimes DHing looks good, and sometimes it doesn't, so we decided against it. And mm-hmm. then like what they give you in the movie, you completely understand. It's like super quick, and it's done tastefully, and it's not distracting, and you're like, wow. If only all movies could do this. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And that sums up the whole film. Is like they they realize what they can and can't do. And so they utilize what they can do really well. And uh, yeah. that's that's the whole movie in a nutshell, honestly. Well, the, yeah, the uh, I liked because we do see a young Ethan Hunt. We just don't focus on his face. Um, they gave him slightly longer hair, which I yeah. thought was great because Tom Cruise's hair length... Uh, it changes depending on the film. So. And if it's pre one, then it would be long because it's like long, yeah. short, long. Usually long, short, long, it short. It used long-ish. to be, yeah. That that's <laughs> the way it went. Um, and then I guess Macquarie was like, "Stop having long hair." 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, it is funny hearing Tom Cruise. I've been I've read that he said that he watched a bunch of de aging scenes, and he said some were good and some were bad. And it's like that is absolutely true. Yeah, um, because there are. A, a, a good example of it looks good and it looks bad is Michael Douglas in the Marvel films where it looks yeah. so good in the first Ant-Man, um, that one scene at the beginning. Then when they the uh, prologue scene in the second Ant-Man film, it looks a little worse. And then when you get to Endgame where he's meant to be younger again... It's got that really uncanny valley smooth effect, and it's only right. on screen for, you know, like less than thirty seconds. So it's like it's fine. Like we know it's you know it is what it is, but it is funny when you like it looks so good in the first one where you go, wow, this is great, and then by the <laughs> the most recent time they did it where it should look better, it doesn't. So yeah, it's that's. Like the tech- that's it though right it's like smoothing it out is all you can really do so everyone just has very smooth plasticky faces even though no matter what you age you have you've got wrinkles in some shape or form like there's no texture when they 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 smoothen it out like that and then of course the more you dig into it then you get into the like well their bodies don't move the same their voices don't move the same yeah move the same sound Sound the same same. um like i think of like nick fury right in the um captain marvel movie yeah we're like he looks pretty good that's because nick fury doesn't look that different they just Sam made Jackson. his hair not yeah. gray and smoothed out his face a bit but then he moves yeah. and it's like ooh, remember that he fights uh oh like, his fight with uh with ben mendelson where yeah he like goes to wind up for a punch or something and it's it's like an old man because he yeah. is and <laughs> yeah um well like i think back to one of the first de-aging effects in a really big movie, funny enough, was X-Men 3. Um, and <laughs> You think your daughter is sick? That one? <laughs> yeah, that one. And uh, they look okay. I think for the time, in 2006, I think it's decent. And even at the time, people were like, that looks bad. And you had people that were like, that's amazing. And I think there's an interview with Patrick Stewart at the time where he's like, I thought they did it a little too much. Um, and then you look at him three years later in X-Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> where he looks so much worse. And of course the effects in that film, you know, there's, they're not good. Um, but, and I don't even know if he actually filmed anything for that. I've never mm-hmm. seen any images of him like behind the scenes. I, I he could just be 100% computer generated. I've, I actually don't know. Right, he doesn't move because he's he speaking telepathically. It, it is cut to a man standing there. Yeah, he does say, "You're safe now." I think so. Uh, maybe maybe they got him. For, you know, they shot him for thirty seconds and wrapped. But uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it, it is funny how he's talked about that. It's like, yeah, sometimes it looks really good, and then like further down the line in a franchise, it looks worse, which shouldn't be how it is when you know technology should actually get better with time but uh, yeah yeah so anyway that was just on that and of course that is a big part of the movie about ai and that's really the villain of the movie uh not just this guy from ethan hunt's past uh but also this threat of this program um that you know will will make you think that you're you're actually hearing simon pegg in your ear when it's not really him (laughs) 
Yeah, I would say, because obviously people talk about this movie and, and how it works. I know Fallout is a lot of people's favorite, and it, it might sure. be mine, too. I think a lot of that has to do with the villain um, in that end battle. Um, something just so perfectly satisfying about how his character goes out. and um, mm. Yeah, just a lot of that felt really, really good. Um, but this one has the, the nice sort of ability to have a lot of tension. And I think, you know, the, the AI thing helps because you have this this entity, as they keep calling it, the entity. Uh, the entity. Is, yeah, so I was trying to remember can, like, what they call it, yeah. It knows everything, and it can see all and hear all. And, you know, we, we have the whole, uh, I guess, I don't know if we ever officially said it, but obviously spoilers. Um, we There's, mm-hmm. like, the whole bomb threat in the airport, and it's like, oh, it's it's one of these, like, you know, I forget what the exact name is, but it's those tests to like find out more information about you. The more you answer about it, the more it knows. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just kind of like a demonstration of what it can do and everything. And, and you, you legitimately don't know who's on whose side anymore. And mm-hmm. because they can't properly communicate, like, you know, there's like, all right, we got the three guys. <laughs> we got Benji and Luther and, and Ethan yeah. on. And then everyone else is like, who knows who's playing who anymore. Mm-hmm. And then, you get the introduction of of you know basically Catwoman, right? Is is that the best <laughs> Haley Atwell's character? Yeah, Haley Atwell's yeah. character is like sort of this cat burglar sort of uh, pit pocket uh, person who's thrown into a world bigger than her. Uh, and so you've got all these different moving parts, and you, it's it's really interesting to see where it goes. And so every scene is so filled with like I I have no idea. I literally have no idea how this is going to escalate because anything mm-hmm. can happen, right? Like like yeah. you just mentioned before, we had that scene where, you know, Ethan Hunt gets tricked. He's got uh, Simon Pegg in his ear telling him directions, and all of a sudden it's it's an AI-generated mm-hmm. <laughs> Simon Pegg because of the entity. And so, like, at any point, you have no idea what's going on. And uh, I thought that was that was probably the, the highlight of the film is its ma- ability to maintain this rising tension up until yeah. the the ending action set piece, which is, you know, that sort of like hold your breath kind of mm. action tension. So oh, it, yeah. it works. That uh, I was literally on the edge of my seat, uh, like leaning forward, at, watching the screen uh, as uh, Ethan Hunt and Catwoman. Uh, I can't remember. What, what was uh, <laughs> Haley Atwell's character's name? Uh, Grace. Grace, Grace, because it's yes. the whole religious thing, right? Right. It's Grace yeah. and Gabriel, and you know, sure. it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Hunt and Grace are going from train cart to train cart um, as they're hanging off of a cliff, um, and just like, oh my god, like the the stuff with the piano where it's hanging on by, uh, essentially by a thread. And yeah, I mean, that stuff was so exciting. There's no music. It's just filled with tension. I loved that. And obviously there's there's visual effects and special effects. I should say CGI used in that scene a little bit. But mm. it, it's a good example of how you can balance both, I think, um, these Mission Impossible films. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tons of exciting sequences. I mean, the, the whole uh, car chase in Vienna is really spectacular to watch. And also I've heard Tom Cruise in the past talk about how he loves silent film. And, uh, uh, there's clearly some, some kind of, uh, slapstick buffoonery a little bit in uh, (laughs) that scene. Like the car goes turning around the, the little beetle car that they have. And, uh, they've swapped seats somehow. Um, 
yeah, like th- that stuff was fun as well. Oh yeah, this is one of the funnier of the films. There's tons of, so of little stuff like that. Yeah. There's, I mean, that whole, yeah, you said like that whole scene is chalked with with so many little comedy moments of him, you know, getting in the car and there's a whole like you know, I, I, I'm not used to this car. It's like it's all right, take your time. There's once he gets out of the car and his hand is handcuffed to the the steering wheel, steering wheel and he's yeah. like trying to find a natural way to walk around while holding a steering wheel. <laughs> it's like, yes. It's, it's yeah. like, legit, like Tom Cruise being legitimately funny. It's not yeah. just like pointing and laughing at the weirdo. It is an actually <laughs> really funny moment. Um, yeah, there's there's tons of that here. I, I really loved, and I know we're hopping all over the place, but like... Sure. Like I said, if if you've seen the movie, you, we've already said it's great. You should probably go see it already. You're just listening to us talk about the highlights. Uh, when he goes, <laughs> you know, preparing to go over that cliff, and you know they have that conversation of of like I can't just jump off. Like I I wouldn't be able to get enough space. I'm not high enough for my chute to go out. Like the, <laughs> there's jagged edges over the entire like, mountain. <laughs> it just like it almost feels like. Like, like Macquarie is is what Cruz is saying, and what Simon yes. Pegg is is you know that that's like that's Cruz right there. It's Tom Cruise. Like, yeah. yeah, just just <laughs> fucking do it. Just make it happen. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just a crazy man wants to do it, and and in kind of in a similar vein to like the first one, where I know um, Red Letter Media had had mentioned it. I think I guess it was Mike, where like under the helicopter scene in Fallout. Where, like, suddenly it becomes a little less cinematic because it's like a rig, you know, a camera sure. mounted onto a helicopter. You yeah. do get that vibe, but it almost is like a, like, 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 put on your 3D glasses now. Like, you know, something amazing is about to happen. Where right. we get, like, the yeah. shot of him, like, driving up and you're like, oh, it's happening. It's happening. And then yeah. he goes over and, like, that, because of the way these moves had, like, trained you, you're almost, like, more excited than if it had looked. I don't know, cinematic or like bigger or whatever, because you're, it, it looks weird, but it, therefore it looks more real and you know, it's real <laughs> to a point naturally. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a pretty spectacular film. And like you said, it, it, it's funny when you get to the end, cause you kind of reminded like, Oh yeah, this is part one because suddenly we're told, <laughs> uh, like or we hear a voiceover, I should say where it's like, Oh, okay. This is where I can tell the film is going to end here. Um, and this did have more of an ending, but it's still cliffhanger in that you know this isn't the end of the story, that there's a lot more to be told, and, uh, um, and, but at the same time, there's kind of a, a, uh, they wrap up the story a little bit with the two, uh, is it CIA characters, um, that, uh, are following Ethan Hunt, uh, around. Oh, Shay um, Wiggum? Shay Wiggum, yeah, who's... <laughs> I mentioned on Letterboxd, he's my new favorite character in the series because he just keeps on grabbing people's faces to see if they're even hunting a mask. And, it was really funny. Um, yeah, it was great. And man, what a summer for him, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, he's he's doing great. I'm, yeah. I'm, just, I'm really happy for him because he's always been he's always been one of those reliable type guys, yeah, right? So Where good. you can you can always count on him. And so having him here, he just felt real and he felt appropriate. Um, but you're right. It, it definitely has more of an ending, but it, 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 it sets it up as if you are going to end on this, like, well, we got to figure it out next time, mm-hmm. you know, cause it, it's the whole movie is about like a fight over a, like two keys that make one key that, that unlock a thing. Who knows <laughs> yes. what it unlocks. Yeah. Um, and like Deathstroke's trying to get it the whole time. And you know, you think <laughs> he's got it. 
because um, they set up this wonderful thing of like, oh, the AI sees a, you know, a couple of solutions. Either you kill the guy who knows what he is because of your blind rage, or you die, and that solves the AI's problem. But like, mm-hmm. you're, it's not so you have to do the unthinkable. Like, it thinks maybe you can win if you do this. Yeah. Um, so like, he gets away, and it's like, oh no, he's got the key, and you think like, oh well, I know this is part one, so maybe we just won't get him next time. Mm-hmm. Kind of vibe, and it's like, oh, this is a lot of stress but you do get that almost like glimmer of hope because it's like oh well we got the key because of the whole sleight of hand pit pocket sort of like gimmick (laughs) that we've we've set up here so it 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 has a bit more of a satisfying like okay this is an ending it's not the ending obviously we still have to stop the entity and all that but yeah it wasn't like a hopeless sort of like we'll figure it out kind of ending it was a we gotta win and I mm-hmm. thought that was really satisfying because I wasn't expecting it, considering that it straight up was just called part one. And after Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. which I like that ending a lot, too. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I know some people don't like a straight up cliffhanger, but that served that purpose. But I like that we went in this direction with this movie. Yeah, I hate the argument of, well, it's not a complete story. So, you know, this is you can't really judge this movie until you've seen the next one. It's like, well, that's. I don't, I don't think that's really how that works. I, I don't know where that mindset comes from. Um, like, I kind of... I, I got a lot of respect for Tarantino, but I, I don't like that he thinks of the two Kill Bills as one movie. Like, when he's right. like, I'm only going to make nine movies. Two of them count as one, or whatever. And it's like, it's, <laughs> that, that those are two separate movies. I mean, that right? So, yeah, I... Um, I, I do... This is its own film, for sure, just like Spider-Verse was. I mean... If, mm-hmm. if for some reason we don't get uh, beyond the Spider-Verse, I'm still very happy with Across the Spider-Verse as a movie. I I was very happy with that experience. Um, so, yeah, similar with this, where it's exciting to see where they go next. And uh, the fact that we don't really know anything about it is exciting as well. Uh, sometimes with these things, you can... You, you know, you know that certain actors have already been cast or they've already started shooting. So there's been photos and it's like, you know, we knew things about Endgame technically before seeing uh, Infinity War because they shot them together. Um, so it, we're kind of at that point where it's like, I don't know where the next one's really going to go. There's an idea and obviously he has to even things with the villain. You would think, I get, just quickly, that's one slight criticism I kind of have of the movie is that the... The stuff with the the villain, um, uh, Esa Morales' character, is a little underdeveloped. You're kind of just told that he did something and you, you see images of it and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's I'm guessing we're going to get more of that. I guess they, for now, they felt it was enough to say, he's someone from his past, we're not meant to like him, <laughs> and that's enough. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I'm thinking that we, we probably get a little more depth with that character in the next one, so... Yeah, I'd say that's pers- that's possible. I mean, so he's yeah. got to be defeated, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's that's the main thing. They got to take him out somehow, and it's yeah. it's got to be in a way that doesn't come off as revenge, because sure. we've already proven yeah. that revenge isn't the answer. It'd be weird if he just like kills him and that's it. <laughs> it's yes. like, well, Ethan Hunt, you learned that battling your demons, the best option is just to fucking kill. Him. <laughs> it's like, yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, good film. Excited for the next one. Yeah, of course, totally. Well, I suppose we should move on to the. Uh, actually, just actually, just before we wrap up Mission Impossible, I did just want to say one thing. I just remembered. Oh. Um, you had mentioned when you saw it and how you know what are these 
opening weekend numbers even mean anymore if you can <laughs> see a film on a Monday that comes out on a Wednesday. So films in Australia come out on a Thursday. Thursday night is always opening day. Uh, I saw this on the Saturday before the movie came out, which is almost a whole week. Yeah. And I think it technically came out on the Friday or something. No, it came out on the Saturday and I saw it on the Sunday. Sorry, I lied. <laughs> but it came out on a Saturday. <laughs> and it's like, a Saturday, that five days before a movie comes out, that's not an advanced screening anymore. That's just a new release date. Yeah. I've got a lot of respect for Tom Cruise as a, a creative and a, a filmmaker, if you want to call him that, and, you know, a performer. But uh, I do get a little bit of a sense of, it was like, a little bit of throwing a tantrum a little bit like these other movies are going to take away my IMAX screens I'm going to be in cinemas longer so it <laughs> feels a little bit like that which is fine a little bit I'm, I'm happy for people to get to see this I, I would hate for uh, for people to have missed out on seeing this movie because some other big films come out a week later um, but we've talked you know on this pod as we've chronicled this uh, the busiest summer that we've had post pandemic mm-hmm. um where we have had a big release every week and it's been leading up to Barbenheimer Day um, where <laughs> both of these films have come out on the same day and, uh, you know, I, I, the meme got a little old for me um, but, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's been it's a big day and uh, a big... It, this used to happen all the time. Big films used to be released on the same day all the time. People have been pointing to Mamma Mia and The Dark Knight coming out on the same day mm-hmm. and... That wasn't really news back then because that just happened a lot. Studios made a lot more movies. Right. And so few films come out that way anymore. And with streaming, films don't have to be released on a Thursday. They can be released any day of the week. So this happens less and studios are less willing to compete with one another on the same day and and uh, hurt their own box office. But Warner Brothers obviously were happy to maybe, you know... <laughs> <laughs> hurt their competition uh with something their, so they chose their ex-boyfriend their ex-boyfriend yeah yeah so maybe they, just a little bit just a tad but uh yeah let's talk about barbie yeah yeah uh, well i guess real quick um i i did do the full barbenheimer experience sure right yeah. i saw barbie first and then Oppenheimer. Um, a lot of people sort of debated on which you should see first and how you should go and all those things blah 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 um you know, I guess to each their own. Uh, that being said, Ray and I are, you know, Nolan fans. We mm-hmm. were very excited for his new film. And so it just felt more appropriate that we would have, like, some fun with Barbie mm-hmm. and then go into our most anticipated film of the year. You know, end with the main event. Um, sure. And I don't know. Maybe people have seen it and they don't know how, you know, which way to go after this. If I can make a recommendation, I would say Barbie then Oppenheimer purely mm-hmm. because I don't want to do anything after seeing Oppenheimer. Like that is such a <laughs> sure. definitive statement and we'll get into why I could not imagine watching that and then going and watching Barbie. Cause my brain would be so racked with so many things. And you know, granted there are elements that if your brain is racked with certain ideas, such as mortality that could mm-hmm. kind of help with the themes of, of Barbie in that's a true. sense, but that's true. I, I still believe, um, Bar- obviously you had seen Oppenheimer and then Oppenheimer again. And, and Barbie, how did, how did your order go in the long <laughs> run? Did you do, did you do the Oppenheimer Oreo? Did you go 
Oppie, Barbie, mm-hmm. Oppie. Um, I I wish I could say that I did. Uh, not quite. I did see Oppenheimer twice within a twenty four hour period, um, and then I saw Barbie after my second viewing of Oppenheimer, um, which and then I followed that up with the big screen screening of Inception. So I mean, <laughs> I guess there was there was a Nolan Oreo of sorts. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, um, I was I don't know if that was the best way to do it um i I do agree with you that i think it's good to to start it with the fun one even though there is a lot of existential crisis in barbie and themes of uh you know feminism and patriarchy the patriarch and and all of that but uh yeah to me uh, i kind of wanted to see oppenheimer and just see oppenheimer i I just wanted to experience that without seeing another film or or thinking about another Mm -hmm. film and comparing them um and uh, so that's the way I chose to do it. I saw mine 10 minutes apart. So Barbie um, <laughs> is uh, funny enough, obviously, because Barbie, this is a toy movie. Uh, this yes. is this is a, you know, produced by Mattel. Uh, as you can see in the film itself, it's about the very famous doll that I don't have to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly, not a children's film, I would argue. It's it's never like horribly gratuitous in any major way mm-hmm. um that being said the themes of the film and and some of the things presented i i don't know it's it's not like a little kid's film like maybe mm-hmm. if your 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 child is getting older and they're more of like a preteen, and it's like you know what you're you're able to to learn about some older stuff and not just watch like preschool stuff maybe at that point you could show mm-hmm. them it um because it is funny. You know, a lot of this advertisement is obvious. It's, it's Barbie. How do you keep kids from not wanting to see this bright, pink, colorful film? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go to it. And then, like you said, there's a lot of conversations about uh, the sort of female experience and what mm-hmm. that means uh, to to the point where, I mean, it, they don't say vagina once in the movie. They say it more than that. So it's like if you're one of those people that, that don't want your kids hearing about genitalia and things like that, understandable. But hey, slightly older kids, you know, who you don't mind. Because it's not like we're saying major curses and there's no like, I don't know, like over the top gratuitous things. But there are things that are not meant for little, little kids. The, the motherfucker gets said in the movie, but it's bleeped, um, which <laughs> <laughs> was, was something. Uh, yeah, yeah well, I had kids in my session who I could tell were bored out of their minds because I could hear them talking. <laughs> yeah, th- I was thinking like, oh, this is not for them. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like you said, it's Barbie. Of course, kids are going to want to see this. So, yeah. Um, but I also think it's fun enough that they will get something out of it. But yeah, yeah. the uh, the scenes where Barbie is kind of sitting there looking at people and some people are depressed and some people are making out and and, sh- and she's all sad and uh she's starting to feel emotions for the first time and it's like yeah i, I don't know if a kid is going to really connect to this but at the same time <laughs> you can make that argument about the marvel movies or anything like that that kids are going to mm-hmm. see so i don't think it's the end of the world um that they didn't make this for families even though it's a pg movie um but that's just an interesting uh, comment that I think should be addressed. 
Yeah, like I said, I, I think it's it's fine depending on who your kids are, you know. Yeah. Just it, it's PG, parental guidance suggested, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the entry level little kids movie, despite mm-hmm. the fact that before it, we got trailers for like the new Trolls film and like mm-hmm. an Illumination film about ducks, which was funny because oh. I was like, just release Mario again. You'll probably make more money. <laughs> you know, why why bother making new films? Just keep releasing Mario. <laughs> Yeah, well, eventually until you reach the second film exactly um yeah my i got the trailer for wonka uh beforehand which oh. and and haunted mansion and it's like okay these make sense because these are both yeah kids can see these um so it it makes sense uh but they're also slightly aimed at a little bit of an older audience so they're not little kid movies um, right and then we got Gran Turismo, which I'm like, I don't know who that's marketed for. I got no clue. So <laughs> it's, it's marketed towards Stranger Things fans, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. so, yeah. So uh, yeah, Barbie. Obviously, it's a story of your your very own Barbie doll starts to not feel so perfect and special in every way, and is told to go to the real world to 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 fix the problem because something's going on with their their human child. Um, I, I should say I enjoyed the film. I, I liked it quite a bit. It, it's mm-hmm. it feels like a real movie. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a sort of cynical kind of thing. It feels like it has something to say, and mm-hmm. it does say it. Um, I, I guess it will get into it. The problem I kind of have with the movie is that it it's smarter than like your average dumb movie. So therefore, yeah. it's it's more blatant when it isn't as smart as <laughs> as you think it should be. And I yes. think that's kind of the problem is there's a tons of stuff in here where you're like, that is worth saying. I totally think that this is something that pe- that should be said in these kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And then you start to think about other stuff and you're like, well, how come this wasn't ever addressed? Or wait a minute, yeah. hold on. What is this about? And then you get to the ending and you're like, I don't know if I would have done that, how yes. they did that exactly, but okay. Um, but through all that, it is a very fun and very entertaining and very like good looking film obviously everything said in barbie land is super fun and oh yeah made so meticulously and all the jokes are really good there's an early part in the film where they like go to the beach and that's where (laughs) beach ken is and you know he he like is 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 like hey barbie check this out and he like runs up to the water and he hits a wave and he like soars through the air and it's like the goofiest looking thing ever. Like yes. it, it does not look real in the slightest, but it's not supposed to. And he like flips through the air like a kid, like you know, flipping a doll through the air. And he's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you got Alan, who's played by Michael Sarah, and it, it, like the camera pushes <laughs> in on him, going, "No!" <laughs> I like a, a full on scream, just like yeah. th- not hold back. I, I mean, yeah, Alan Michael Sarah is. is one of the funnier characters in the movie. Um, yeah. Really, all the Kens are, are really great. Um, the, I, yes. I, my re- my review ahead. of the film was was poor Ken. Uh, my <laughs> yes. original review of the film was poor Ken, uh, except Shang-Chi Ken. Fuck that Ken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck him. Um, no, that was the, uh, the, the Ken that was... Um, uh, oh, um, Ben Kingsley Adir, is that his name? He's... Uh, He's the villain in, in uh, the latest Marvel show, uh, and he was also oh right yeah he was also in uh, a, a film that we once uh, covered called Noel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, the Obama detective. Obama detective. Uh, he's yeah. a really good actor. I've seen him in other stuff, and he's he's always good. But uh, he, I found him really entertaining as well in this. Just some of his reactions in the background, I would just notice him and laugh. But uh, yeah, yeah, Ryan Gosling in this is so funny. Yeah, um, he's been funny for a really long time. Like when you know you think about the nice guys or. Um, uh, crazy stupid love and like he's been very funny in films in comedies before but right he is in his element in this he's so good um his timing's great and when uh when barbie kind of fake asks him out on a date and he has to go away for a second to think about it and you just hear him yell sublime <laughs> I, I died <laughs> like, it was it was yeah he's great in this yeah, I mean, he's, he's perfect. All the stuff in the real world with him uh, sort of mm-hmm. discovering the power of man and everything is is <laughs> yes. so well done. And yeah, every, everything about his performance is, is great. I mean, everyone's got really strong performances here. Yeah. Um, and it's all, I don't know, played super well because obviously the, the I, I guess, the elephant in the room about this, not really. Uh, you know, we're <laughs> not the target demo for the Barbie <laughs> sure. sort yeah. of world. Um you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like I don't I'm not damning anyone who ever has, but like I was the oldest child in my family, and I have two younger brothers, so there was never a chance that there'd be any kind of Barbie in 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 my house. I've never mm-hmm. played with Barbies. Obviously, you have a younger sister, yeah. So I don't know if if Barbies were ever prevalent in in your world, but I I didn't really have any exposure to it until uh, years and years later when I had like younger cousins that were, were sure. girls and everything. Yeah, my sister played with Barbie a lot. Um, I guess I never... Because that's the thing, like, sometimes, you know... I, for example, my sister would play with my Action Man figures because they were uh, about the same size as the Barbies. So mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't just Ken that would marry a Barbie. It would be one of my Action Man figures. Um, but I never had anything where I required playing with Barbie. Like, with Action Man, I never needed... I guess he never saved Barbie in in when I in my playtime. So sorry, Barbie. Um, Damn. But uh, yeah, I'm just realizing that now. I was about to say like I didn't have anything that. No, I did. I just said I did. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Where's my Action Man movie? Where's where's that? I'm sure that was in development at some point, right? Yeah, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has the rights to that. Uh, but yeah. So there's a, a lot of things where it's it's. I, I, I'm sure if you're really deep into the Barbie world and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot more stuff that means to you. That mm-hmm. being said, there is still plenty that you could totally get reference to. Uh, one of the obvious ones is like the weird Barbie, the Kate McKinnon Barbie where mm-hmm. her hair is all cut and she's colored on and, yeah. and, you know, kids are always like bending legs and arms. So she's really <laughs> yeah, flexible. The splits. Yeah. Uh, it, it had one of the, the parts that Ray and I had the biggest shock to, because uh, if you've ever, you know, not not that many of you would, but my girlfriend Ray um, was a big dinosaur fan as a kid, mm-hmm. and she is often always said of like you know I always had uh, speaking for her she would say that her Barbies would like bow down to the dinosaurs and that they misbehaved she would have her dinosaurs eat her Barbies, <laughs> um, and so there's a moment on screen of when we're establishing weird Barbie of like a girl having a dinosaur attack a Barbie. And it was just like, like I have been hearing her tell this story for years. And so seeing that on the big screen was an amazing moment of just like, oh my God, it's real. Like they get it. Like, like I, I didn't even play with Barbies, but I 
know someone who did. And so it's like, they get it. They get yeah. what these kids are, what the play factor is and, and all that stuff. And obviously that's so evidence with the very early on in the film where we're setting up the world and they, they start like, they flat out say of like, Oh, kids don't have Barbie. You know, they don't articulate her to open the door and walk outside. Mm-hmm. It's like, you just pick up Barbie and you take her where you need to go. That's why every Barbie floats down from the top of her dream house because you, you need to, yeah. you know, that's how she moves. So like all that attention to stuff was, was I think what really helps the film maintain its level of quality because uh, there there are some weird choices. I guess, mm-hmm. once again, jumping around a little bit, I thought a lot of the real world stuff was really funny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's some really good gags in that. Um, one of my, my, my favorite gags in the whole movie is when we're at the sort of Mattel headquarters. Mm-hmm. And, like, we see all these, like, dark gray cubicles and everything. Yeah. And then we get, like, a phone call and it split screens to, like, a normal looking oh. office and it's yeah. well lit. And they go, FBI. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's perfect. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I love that shot. Like, the, the extras, like, meeting each other in the split screen and walking. I thought that was, like, a really well composed sequence yeah 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 that was great a lot of that stuff is done really well there's a whole chase sequence around the cubicles that's it's done in a funny manner and it it makes me question of like okay well if the the point is that barbie goes to the real world why is the real world also a cartoon that's like yeah that that's a weird choice that like the the people that work at mattel and the way they act like there's something like Will Ferrell is the CEO of Mattel yeah. in this movie. Um, and I mean, if you thought there were Lego comparisons <laughs> before, <laughs> yes, president <laughs> that business. really, yeah, really drives it home. I, I, I guess I could say I, I prefer the Lego movie. I think it handles yeah a lot of because the, there's similar themes of like be yourself and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. There, there's a chase sequence and like Will Ferrell's running like a silly person, like he's very stiff, mm-hmm. and like like most like Will Ferrell type of comedy happens where they like Barbie and him like run into each Meet other each other and yeah. then they go past each other and then Wolf Harold does this like oh stupid like you're supposed to catch her like kind of like yeah. body acting and it's like like if you like that kind of humor you're gonna like it um because there's tons of that in the film there's there's quite a few where Will Ferrell moments that almost feel like classic Will Ferrell um yes. there's a good part when they get to Barbie land and yeah, you know, they they early on established the character Midge, who was a real Barbie toy that was like pregnant Barbie. <laughs> yeah. Her name was Midge, and he simply just like looks at her and goes, oh, "Midge." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just my uh, screening, it was it was relatively full, and there wasn't a lot of reacting to jokes and funny moments, which I thought was weird. I've mentioned a couple of times on the pod how sometimes a a, a dead audience can affect how you feel about a movie, but. I think mm-hmm. I liked it. I felt like I was enjoying it more than most people in the cinema, but I don't know if that was the case. Just people just weren't laughing at a lot. But right. That midge joke got a huge laugh, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, there are people in here." Okay, so it's just the way he says it. I yeah. don't know what it was. It was so like aggressive and like like it was like he's seen a a, a person he knew because he knows midge. Like he's like, oh, yeah. midge." Like he immediately <laughs> recognized who that was supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> But, but there's, like, stuff like that where it's, like, I don't know the choice there to make the real world not so real. Yeah. Because it, like, it's more real than Barbie Land, but mm-hmm. 
it's it's still very fictional like there's that funny part where they get to the real world and then they um she's because like in barbie land everything's run by women because it's the barbies Mm -hmm. barbies are everything kens are accessories essentially yeah um and so, like, they see, like, a group of construction workers, and she's like, oh, perfect. There'll still be some ladies energy. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then when they get there, they, like, almost, like, over top of each other, they just literally say every sort of cat call yeah. you can imagine. And it's like, okay, that's funny, but, like, it's not really realistic. And I'm no. sure there are people like, no, actually, it is realistic. I hear it sure. all the time. It's like, that, yeah. that's, but the way it's presented, it is almost comical. Because then it gets followed up with the bit of, like, let me make it clear that I don't have a vagina and he doesn't have a penis. And they go, like, oh, that's that's okay. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought just... that was so funny to follow up. I'm like, yeah, sure, it's fine. It's 2020 uh, current year. Yeah. It's like, so, which is it? Are they, like, gross catcalling pigs? Or are they, are they, I don't know, do they live in 2023? Yeah, it was weird. Uh, that, in particular, just kind of made me go, well, that shouldn't have been the follow-up. They should have yeah. been weirded What's the out. Point? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the weird choices overall when, in some places, and we'll get into more, but, like, that's yeah. one of the weird ones. Yeah, it is. Um, I guess the the theme about Barbie Land, you know, is everything's run by women and the Kens are the, the accessories, and then Ken changes everything and and uh, and makes it uh, his, his Kendom. Kendom um, Land. Kendom Land. Uh, and his, what was his house? The, the Mojo Dojo... Uh, casa house casa house yes ken's mojo dojo casa house <laughs> yes um but so like that stuff was funny but i i didn't love seeing ken be the villain i that was like oh i feel bad it's because <laughs> I, I didn't like seeing that so much but anyway um yeah the, the well, it's it's strange because like it's slightly justified in a horrible mm-hmm. way um and then the wrap-up is i wish I, they had more to it ultimately yeah, because it the message of um I, I and i don't want to sound like what i'm sure a lot of men are going to sound like talking about this movie but there's a little bit of men bad women good and it's a little too simplistic in its message i thought and mm-hmm. it, it it again it's it it feels like there should be more to it like it just it's a very broad message that um kind of like you said, it's like they they go somewhere with it, and then it's like, oh, is that it? Is that like you've you've said something that's just again a very blanket right. statement? Because well, a lot of things it said are true. Like there's a big mm-hmm. part in which you know Barbie has to go to the real world. Um, I, I will say I was wondering because there's a there's a whole gimmick of like you have to find the girl that used to play with you and like figure out what's wrong with her because her emotions and things are messing with you, and that's why you're experiencing all because she's like basically becoming a normal person she's yeah you know not perfect and, and pretty she's got cellulite and her feet aren't like comically arched like the toy and all that yeah um so like we get this thing where we see visions of a mom and a girl playing with barbies and then the girl like growing out of it she's become an angsty teenager and you know i don't know it, it when, when it was happening it was like very evident of like oh it's the mom not the little girl like this is very very obvious so i did have that moment of like how long are they gonna make us wait for the reveal and luckily it wasn't long because they immediately show the mom who works at mattel <laughs> she's like drawing yeah. you know she's like this is depression barbie and stuff like that um and you go okay thank god like i was so worried that we were gonna have a whole drawn out bit of like i gotta find my girl and, and without the movie acknowledging it and granted 
they don't find that out, but the movie tells you that it's okay to know that before the reveal happens. Mm-hmm. And I was I was a little worried about that. But so yeah, like all the things that like the mom says, because then the mom reveals of like, oh, you know, I just missed playing with my my daughter, and then she goes to Barbie Land and basically tells all these Barbies different things of the double standards of being a woman, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you have to be skinny but not too skinny, and attractive, but if you're too like presumptuous you become a slut and like all those things were it's difficult and all those things are very very true but it's also built on the top of this idea that like in barbie land all the women are in charge and all the the women basically take the place of men here mm-hmm. and the kens are just sort of like mindless and nobody cares and every night is girls night you know that's yeah. the way it is so ken when he sees the man's world and as he sees it men with horses and trucks <laughs> that's his perception the horses bit was very amusing yeah yeah um and so he's like really excited about all that and then we all break that down to because the the whole time he's like really trying to get barbie's attention and she's not giving him the time to day and i thought we were gonna go with like well why doesn't barbie love ken because yeah. ken is obsessed with barbie but Barbie does it, and it's like, so is that not tied into the whole toy thing? Like, is yeah. there not a toy cosmic reason for why this Barbie... Because she could be not allowed to. Like, that could have been a story. Mm-hmm. But there's... I, I was expecting a bit more of like, okay, well, why don't you love... Because everyone seems to have a Ken. Stereotypical Barbie yeah. apparently goes with Beach Ken, so why don't... Why do only one of you connect? Because then, yeah, the whole point of the at the end is like the Barbies try to trick the Kens out of their ownership of Barbie land... And it's just a bunch of, like, emotional manipulation. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not okay. <laughs> no. That's, that, that, so, yeah, when that sequence was happening, where they're playing a, I think it's a Matchbox 20 song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can I play my guitar at you? Um, which also got a big laugh out of me. Um, yeah, then they they start manipulating them and, like, making them jealous. And it's like, well, that's, wait, what message is that sending? That's not cool. So, yeah, that, that the message to me is a little muddled and also not clear enough because if it is Barbie and Ken, like you said, why does Barbie not want to be with Ken? If he is just an accessory, why doesn't she want to be with him? Because that's right. a part of her life, like her house and her everything else. And it's okay that she doesn't want to be with Ken, but like, yeah. what's the the reason behind it? And I, I guess that's also part of it is like Ken takes over and yeah, he's basically evil but he's mm-hmm. not evil. He just wants to be noticed. And mm-hmm. he, he wants to be in charge for once. And it's like, okay, I... Because at one point, she's they're talking about how it's, uh, it's like, oh, hey, you know, had a great time, Barbie. And she's like completely blowing him off. She's like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's her attitude. And it didn't feel like when Ken was in charge, the world was worse. It was just male-oriented with, like, yeah. getting beers and watching sports instead well, of yeah girly things and you know then in the then that somehow affects the production of toys in the okay the real yeah. world we need to get to that part because that made no sense to me where uh someone tells uh will ferrell that sales are still through the roof for this new ken stuff and he's like that doesn't matter we're a we're a company that makes girl toys and it's like but that hold on like this you, there was that whole thing about there was once a woman in charge. We've had two in the history of the, the Earth, and it's like <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, it's like yeah. we had one in the nineties and uh, another, another one. one. <laughs> yeah, so it's like okay, 
so is it are you genuinely trying to be like a, a a girl like a toy company that you know for women or are you just you know money hungry businessmen like i thought that was they didn't establish that well enough i didn't think because they did both right. um but i did love the yeah. commercial uh, of the uh, the sad barbie um that in the middle of the film that Oh yeah, that was, that was like a Adult Swim sketch. I thought yes. that was like really good. Um, yeah, I mean it's a very funny film. It's got a mm-hmm. ton working for it, and there's so much style. Uh, there's a lot of gimmicks of like outfits. You know, there's a whole point where he's like yelling outfits and throwing them out of her dream house, and they like yes. freeze in the air and unfold in like stop motion style, and they say yeah. the full name, and like that is all very fun. And then when we get to the ending. And it's sort of like, all right, we're going to make everything back to normal. And, like, President Barbie pauses and is like, well, you know, maybe we could make things better than they used to be. You know, because it clearly, the Kens weren't happy. Um, and, like, the Kens need to find themselves. Because mm-hmm. that's sort of Barbie's message to Ken, where it's, it's like, I wanted more. Because she's like, well, just, you know, you need to find you. You need to not be, base your entire personality around being my boyfriend, basically. Mm-hmm. Um and then they're like, yeah, let's try to be better. And they're like, can we be in the Supreme Court? And they're like, um, no. <laughs> like, yeah. I want to see the better world. I want to see Barbie and Ken land. Not Barbie land or just Kendom land. Like, I want to see you guys build a better tomorrow. And instead, we get a gag of like, no, we're just going to keep the, like, the the reverse gender norm sort of sexism in Barbie land. And it's like, oh, so you're like the real world, but not so you're still lame (laughs) yeah why don't don't you be a better world why do you have to be the real world (laughs) there's a joke that like we'll make sure that the kens have as much power as the women do in the real world and that was another good joke i loved that of her seeing the like the miss universe pageant billboard and she's like look the supreme court that was good (laughs) actually i love the the whole ken fight sequence uh which turns into a huge musical number that was spectacular i loved that yeah um, but then I also liked when they, uh, after the vote is done, um, they ride imaginary horses back to where all the houses are. The yes. shot of them all just riding nothing uh, was great. I, I, that's the thing is it it's all extremely well put together yeah. and extremely well done, and everyone's performances are really good, and mm-hmm. it's funny and it's cute and it's it's good, and it also has a lot of things to say, but. Be- like I said, the first part, it's just because you're like, oh, I should listen to this. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of may watch yourself going, well, okay, what do we, what do, we do? Mm-hmm. You know, to, to sort of um, reference your Tomorrowland review. That's, um, I was going to bring up Tomorrowland, yeah. There, there's a lot of the beginning of that film of, of, you know, our main character being told that the world is going to end. You know, mm-hmm. there's the global warming and you know, all these things that are, that are killing people and the pessimism is, is tangible. And, you know, our character is seen as such a real crazy out there optimist because they want to fix the world. And like here, it's kind of the thing where it's like, we address the fact that like, man, there are problems in the world. All right. See you later. Yeah. That's, that's kind of part of my problem with it. Yeah. Um, it, it wants to do, let's fix the world's problems and be yourself, you know, at, at the same time, which it kind of, collide with each other a little bit and yeah i was going to mention with tomorrowland there's that sequence in that film where uh hugh laurie is talking about how messed up the world is like you have um uh you know obesity is a problem and you have world hunger at the same time that doesn't even make sense 
and <laughs> it's 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 like yeah these are these are so basic and broad in general you know um this isn't like yeah these are problems in different parts of the world like there's more context to it um this feels like you know a 13 year old talking about what's wrong with the world and there was a little bit of that and it, it is a literal teenager talking about what's wrong with the world at, at you know points in the right. movie she calls barbie a fascist at one point and like yes you you pause and you wonder like well that's supposed to be funny right because the, the whole point is that in barbie land they do believe that they made the world a better place by yes. inspiring young girls to be better and then you get to the real world and you she learns about that real life criticism of like oh barbie unex you know uh, expectations that are unreasonable and all these things and blah 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 and it it's it's interesting to kind of like present those ideas it's like well what do we do with it because i love the the idea of like maybe you know let's just try our best to inspire the youth to, to be who they are whatever that is mm -hmm. you know yeah like not literally be the best of the best but like teaching people that it's okay to be you whatever that you is it's like that's mm -hmm. a wonderful message i love yeah. i love that and yeah i don't hate the idea of of someone who's lived their life in this perfect pristine plastic world wanting more and like you said there's that wonderful scene of her seeing a, a couple fight but then seeing a couple love and then mm. a child playing playing and a person stressed out and she experiences what it means to be human and mm -hmm. you know she sees that that older woman and she's like you're so beautiful and she's like i know and it's like this she she laughs it's like she mm. genuinely laughs for the first time and it's and through all these experiences and all these things she doesn't feel like barbie anymore and she wants to be real and i guess mm -hmm. we should talk about <laughs> where that all goes how it's like that's a good idea i just what why did she come out i just smacked the microphone why does she come out a fully developed person did you think when it started that she was gonna be we were gonna like see her life or something that she would like become a baby and like we would just see like flashes of a woman's life and, and know that she went on to live a life or something because like she goes out into the world and i'm like wait a minute what Barbie's just real now. <laughs> That's yeah. weird. They they really gloss over that. Like there just is a portal at Venice Beach, so technically any of us could go through it. They they don't do anything to explain that, which maybe it doesn't need it. But it, yeah, that was strange. Suddenly she and Ken were just there in the real world, and uh, I thought, yeah, we're gonna get something kind of like the Lego Movie, where when we go to live action and we see uh, Will Ferrell walking around, and then you see. Emmett and Batman and all of these characters, um, you know, in Lego form, uh, you know, all set up. I thought that we were going to get something like that where Barbie land was actually like a bunch of toys all stand all stood together. Right. Again, the, the real world, there's a lot of funny stuff in the real world, but I thought that everything with Mattel was a little, um, again, just kind of underdeveloped a bit. Like, why were they so silly? They could, Should they have just been, like, the cold, you know, calculating company, businessmen? Um, yeah. And did we need America Ferreira's character to work at Mattel? I thought that was kind of a funny... Like, that had nothing to do with the rest of the story. I was kept on... I thought, like, maybe she was going to be on the board at the end of the film or something. Um, right. Which would have been, like, a nice payoff, because she's she has all these ideas about Barbie and she's been the secretary or the, the receptionist. Um, it would have actually made sense if like after her experience going to Barbie land, that she would actually have something to say about the figures and, you know, they'd have a woman on the board and, you know, things would change, but they don't do that. 
nothing changes at the end of the movie. They all no. say that, like, we'll see about it. But then we don't see that. I would have liked to seen the change, both in the real yeah. world and Barbie land. Because there's a joke where she has an idea about a depressed Barbie um, that she tells <laughs> Will Ferrell about. And he's like, that's a terrible idea. And someone says, actually, that's a great idea. And then they go with it. And, yeah. But they learn it's going to make money. So that that's a fine yeah. idea. So, yeah, again, yeah, that's it. It's going to make money. So they're still the cold businessmen, which, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just, I don't know what they were going for with uh, right. that, with the board characters. and Yeah. I get, yeah. Yeah, I just, those frustrations are there, and I feel like, I, I feel I have to point them out, but I did have a lot of fun watching the movie, and... Same. Yeah, so it, it it's a recommendation from both of us to, to see this. It's it's a lot of good fun. It's very funny. It, the production design is great. The... <laughs> The musical numbers are, are, are wonderful as well. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and maybe, you know, if you're you're someone who can connect with a bit more of this, I, I know uh, Ray has some very similar opinions as, as we do, with while mm-hmm. still connecting to some other things. Because obviously, you know, she's a girl, so she can maybe connect a bit more to some of those female messages. Um, but she also found herself connecting to Ken in a lot of ways. So it's like... I think that there is stuff in this movie for both just pure enjoyment, but also something to walk away with. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not one of the greatest films I've ever <laughs> seen, I guess, which is, no. which is fair. Not many films are, mind you. So that's not a horrible thing. I do think, yeah, it, it is something that you should go see in the theater if given mm-hmm. the opportunity. And based off of what we're hearing from the box office, these early numbers, it's doing fantastic. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I think that's great because while it is an IP and it is technically a commercial, um, mm-hmm. the worst part of the movie was when we're in the Mattel offices and then across the way there's that fake Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Discovery. Discovery. Yeah. And I, I hated seeing that with all of my heart. So that yeah. was the worst part. So it's like this is still franchisey toy commercial stuff, but it's not, you know the most basic thing it 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 sort of has the meta-ness of like the the early 2000s josie and the pussycats where it's like that took an old property and kind of decided to say something about it in the music industry and all that kind of stuff and the lego movie it's got that going for it as well so if you feel like the lego movie you'll probably enjoy this like a similar cast in some shape or form at least a few of them (laughs) there's Um, a couple of crossovers yeah i i totally understand why they didn't just because it's a different company and a different version of Barbie and Ken. But, like, wouldn't you have liked to have seen Jodie Benson and Michael Keaton as Barbie and Ken in there oh, somewhere? Yeah. Like, wouldn't it yeah. have been great to, to hear those two, like, see Michael Keaton dressed up in his his nice pastels on in Barbie land, walking up, being like, hey, Barbie? That would have been... Come on. Yeah, I would have liked maybe an older Barbie and Ken. Um, that would have been fun. Especially, Keaton would have been great in that role. Um yeah, and it would have been another role for Keaton this year, so yeah, that's exactly. not a bad thing. No, if you've uh, seen Multiplicity, uh, where Michael Keaton uh, clones himself multiple times, there's mm-hmm. one that's like a really gruff Michael Keaton kind of talks like this. And then there's one that's very homey, and uh, and I, I mean, I he's in love with his wife, but I think it's Im- implied a little bit that that, uh, that that version of Michael Keaton is gay. Um, and it's, it reminded me cause I watched that film for the first time this year. It reminded me of his performance as Ken in Toy Story three. Yeah. Ray had brought up cause obviously Barbie starts to become normal. 
Um, and you had mentioned there's a joke where, like, the narrator is like, you know, Margot Robbie is not exactly yes. the best casting choice for this message, to be clear. Um, it, I, she had, Ray had mentioned, and I think it would have been funny if, like, she had just started talking like Margot Robbie. Like, what if earlier in the, there was, like, Australian Bobby, and she's, like, yeah. really super stereotypically Australian. And sure. it's, it's like, right, that's the, but, like, because Margot Robbie's no longer stereotypical Barbie, she's just like, no, I can have an Australian accent and be normal. Like, I'm just a person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not this perfect being where it's like, I'm an American blonde. It's like, no, this is just me normally. But, you know, it's fine. <laughs> This yeah. could have been something they had done. I would have loved to have seen an Australian Barbie on the big screen. <laughs> Me too. There you go. Okay. Well, that is that. That is the Barbie film. Uh, we both recommend it. Um, oh, I will. Oh, I will. <laughs> uh, I guess moving on to our final film of the evening. Uh, Kirk and I would like to formally apologize um, just because before we had recorded... We had said to each other that we do not know how we are going to properly discuss this film, um, the Oppenheimer, that is. Uh, as I've, we've stated multiple times, we are very big fans of Christopher Nolan. Um, it's something where if he has a new movie out, I am seeing it. It's that simple. And I, I mean, I felt like I was in shock for most of this film. Um, to the point where the final act, I want to say, I, 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 I just, I didn't know how to feel like I had a pit in my stomach and mm. it's like, I was watching a movie kind of thing. And <laughs> I, we'll get into all the details and all the wonderfulness, but it was, it was mesmerizing. It was interesting. So I'm very excited to discuss it, but I can't promise that this will be any kind of general movie discussion because a lot of it will be us just sort of gushing about how much we yeah. We love this film because it is the best film I've seen this year in ways that I can't even describe, which is not good for an audio podcast. <laughs> no, me too. Um, it's early days and I don't want recency bias to take over, but it's it, it could be Chris Nolan's best film. It's certainly when they've talked about it being like the culmination of all of his work and you can see it lead up to this. I did rewatch all of Nolan's films on the lead up to this and uh, in order of their release and especially like little things like obviously Killian Murphy is in so many of his films in uh, mm -hmm. you know su supporting roles seeing that culminate here with him being the lead is very satisfying as both a fan of Nolan and Killian Murphy um, yeah but so many like actors that have had smaller roles in his films like um, David Desmolchian you know had that small oh, role man. in The Dark Knight and oh um, yeah yeah, I mean, it's Matthew Modine and like so many different actors um, who have roles in this. But, uh, and you know, that's something else about the cast is no scene goes by without someone in it, you know, besides like one of the, the principal cast. You know, everyone is like, oh, I know them, I know them, I know them. It's like there's so many actors in it that are recognizable in small roles. And that's what it kind of means to, you know, work with one of these filmmakers. He's now at that level like a PTA, like a Wes Anderson, or like a Tarantino, where these actors will just show up because they want to work with Nolan, and uh, that's pretty yeah. cool to see. But, yeah, in terms of, you know, from a technical standpoint, it's a, a great achievement. Um, some people mm -hmm. get tired of hearing about the no CG in an Nolan film thing, which obviously is an exaggeration. There's been plenty of CG in his films, but 
obviously he set a challenge for himself in this that they wanted to do everything in camera and in editing and uh, that is amazing um these shots there are certain shots in this film that i don't quite know how they would have achieved um you know I, I don't know how they could have achieved it any better had they you know resorted to cgi um right yeah the sequence in this film i think my favorite sequence in the film it, it's haunting and it's you know oppenheimer is giving a speech after the bombing of japan and uh <laughs> you know you've got this crowd of people and the sound design and the lighting and you see a woman which i believe is chris nolan's daughter um, yeah yeah like starting to to fly has its skin fly apart like paper and uh it's all there it's all done in camera and that's that's really spectacular and yeah so from yeah. a filmmaking perspective it's so much it's fun to watch in that respect but as a story it's also um a very gripping story with excellent performances and yeah i loved it yeah yeah i mean that's that's definitely what i mean like post the the the, the sort of the trinity test mm-hmm. i i felt sort of uneasy where yeah. i was just so saddened which was reflective in the film i mean you're talking about the sort of speech that he gives where he's almost forced into giving a very victorious speech yeah rah, when rah we've speech, already yeah. seen that like this isn't the the case for a lot of these people yeah um and like i'm, I'm gonna i'm already like feeling weird just thinking about it but uh, we we get um a very sort of emotional visceral moment where yeah he sees this sort of like what if scenario of these people being incinerated mm-hmm. um but like yeah we don't see it in like a big over the top terminator 2 style way or you know they're not turned into skeletons but then like he starts walking through the crowd and he like steps into like what is essentially like the a charred carcass yes of, of someone's body and like there's no sound because it's all in his head that he's just imagining it yeah. but like i got chills yeah and then i i didn't I, I couldn't stop getting chills like you know how you get chills and you're like oh god it was like wave one two three i like, just like i kept <laughs> i was like oh my god please stop yeah because it was just so heart-wrenching i mean so much of that especially post those those moments the um probably the most like emblematic moments to describe all that is, is the um the over the radio we mm. hear truman talk about how it was a success you know of, of the bombing of hiroshima yeah. um and and jack quaid is standing yeah. in the hallway and he he puts out his hand to shake his fellow scientists as like a graduatory like we did it it works but he's crying the whole time and like that's the feeling of like everyone there was there to do a job was to make this happen and like it's really great because when it works they're all celebratory and whatnot and then as soon as it becomes reality to them mm-hmm. they they can't take it um yeah. uh, there's the, you know the him sort of going out and seeing like so many people's reactions some people are celebrating some people are crying yeah we go out and uh is it uh Devin Crawshaw the the guy from Diary of a Wimpy Kid mm. is he the one that's like throwing up at like the bike stand right um yeah. like there was it's just so much and that's like the whole film the yeah. whole film and a lot of this has to do with the score too yes like it flows to the point where you're almost like listening to like if history was music mm-hmm. you know like it has that sort of feeling of whenever you go and I don't know how many people have, but if you've ever listened to 
uh, an orchestra perform music that is meant to be depicting a story. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I went to one in elementary school, and it was one of those things where, like, as a kid, you're like, I don't fucking hear the sto- whatever the story is. And then you really listen to it, and you're like, oh, there's a story being told that you can see in your head if you listen to how the music is being played. And, like, that's almost how it, this the way, like, the we keep cutting back and forth between you know, certain moments in time and basically his, his story yeah. of, of where he is and what he's doing. And, and it's just like, it, it's almost dreamlike. Yeah. In a way. Um, it, this might be one of Nolan's most stylish films. There's stuff in here. That's like, ironically more creative than when he was making superhero movies, which <laughs> yes. is bizarre. Can we, can we talk about probably the, the scene? It's funny. Cause it's going to make us sound like perverts. Uh, the the oh, scene sure. of yeah. his 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 kangaroo court yeah. uh, that transitions and is is wonderfully done. So uh, yeah, we've basically got this setup of him on trial in this like sort of closet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially, he's being like completely grilled. Yeah, and it's it's sort of revealed. He's he's forced to reveal this uh, affair that he had with Florence Pugh's character, mm-hmm. um, and we get this wonderful pan over. I believe Jason Clark. Yes, uh, where we see. Killian Murphy clothed, and all of a sudden he's sitting there completely nude. And obviously, yeah. he's, it's not like it's it, it's shot tastefully. Yes, it is. <laughs> you're wondering. Yeah. Um, and even though Emily Blunt's character, who is his, his wife, has already heard this story, she knows. Mm. She, we we actually then see her find that out in another scene. Mm. Um, but but we get this great moment of her sitting there, and she's seeing her husband, you know, in the room getting fucked by Florence Pugh and it's like mm. this it's like you get everything you need to know and it's you know it sounds very artsy and like sure. film snobbish to mm-hmm. talk about this like sex scene in a in a movie and how tastefully it was done and whatnot but like you get everything you're supposed to know in such very simple ways yeah and it really it breaks the rules of reality because as as Nolan had talked about all, all the scenes in in color are sort of Oppenheimer's point of view and mm-hmm. you know they're they're uh meant to be seen that way versus black and white which is like what really happened um it's subjective versus objective um and like i just i loved all that there's so many things where where they get like put into the scene we we get that with uh uh Desmalchian talking about him being a pilot and seeing the rockets go overhead, and then yeah. we see Oppenheimer in the seat of the plane. Yeah, yeah. Witnessing it, and it's like, this is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like you're just astounded by the, the by what's happening and the choices being made because they so wonderfully demonstrate how you're supposed to feel in the moment and the fear, the constant level of fear that you should have for something that happened in the 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the feeling of it all. Yeah. And it's the kind of fear that can be applied to anything, like anything else in terms of technology or what have you, because I've seen some people draw the comparison that is this Nolan feeling guilty for the Dark Knight kind of changing how superhero films kind of took over cinema? And if it is, I don't think he should feel that guilt. That wasn't on him. That was on someone else. Um, and, and pumping out these things, you know, multiple times a year. But uh, Brian uh, Singer, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That piece of shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's that's an interesting idea that you can apply that to other things. This just happens to be, you know, 
literally a world changing weapon that you know ended lives it's you know mm-hmm. the most drastic part of it i mean i guess we'll talk spoilers a little bit um but not that there's tons to spoil because the life of it happens. jay yeah sorry jay robert oppenheimer is public record you can you can read all of this if you like it's based on a book um this mm-hmm. film the screenplay but the ending of the film uh being the the final re- like the reveal of what Oppenheimer and Einstein really talked about at the lake and uh we see the shots of the I'm suddenly get chills talking about this bit we see the shots yeah. of the uh the nuclear missiles and the the sky on fire and um yeah I I yeah because we see little glimpses of it it's a it's a nolan uh trademark the 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 quick shots of something uh that's in a character's a character is thinking of something and we see just a brief shot of it and generally we see it out of context until we get the context of it later in the film it's throughout mm-hmm. just about all of his films and uh, <laughs> uh yeah seeing like we just see rockets at one point kind of they could have been silos it was really unclear um, when they're at that, uh, they're around that sort of fancy dinner table with the the flower ornament in the middle, and yeah. he's looking down at the map, and it's kind of like puddles are appearing on the map, um, which you, I guess you know would have been a shot layered over the top of another, um, but they're meant to be bombs going off basically, and we get a brief shot of of uh, the rockets, and yeah, then at the end of the film we get a much clearer shot, so we know what he's thinking, and it is that. Uh, he says to Einstein, I came to you with a, an equation that, you know, is it possible that our bomb could end the world? And I think we have. And yeah, it's, yeah, the score along with it is, is very, very powerful. I was, it's incredibly moving, a very profound ending that, uh, you know, he, he was a brilliant man and, you know, an excellent, uh, an amazing inventor, but did build something that could end the world. And it's not about, whether he built something it's you know what will the next person do to top it so yeah 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 and it's 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 done well enough that it doesn't sort of come out of nowhere you never feel like he was like blindsided by this information mm-hmm. or if he's, he's like stupid for thinking it or, or not thinking of it rather mm-hmm. um it's it's all handled to the point where it's like you know why he's doing it and what he's doing and mm-hmm. yeah the sadness that comes with thinking like well maybe this will stop war you know, once once people see what it can do, they'll be wise enough to never want to use it again. Mm-hmm. And instead, that makes people want to use it even more. And it's the idea of, of we we didn't stop war. Escalation. Mm-hmm. We created more yeah. reason for war and all of these things. And then you get it all tied into the, the sort of communist angle, the, the, the sort of fear mm-hmm. that ran through America and, and the idea that it's like, oh, socialism is more of a enemy than, than fascism mm-hmm. at that point in time. And it's it's especially because obviously right now we're dealing with a lot of strikes, not just in the world of Hollywood, but, you know, UPS uh, is currently Mm -hmm. working on on a strike. And, you know, a lot of this movie has to deal with people wanting to unionize and uh, Oppenheimer sort of like uh, issue is like basically being tied to those things, being one of the problems that America has with him. Mm-hmm. And the potential sort of extreme leftist ideas that that he may or may not even had. Mm-hmm. Um, going back quick to the the ending bit because that is really great with the, so many great fucking performances. Uh, yeah. But Alden Einreich, 
uh, Han Solo, if you yes. will. Yeah. Uh, he's he's in the film very briefly. He basically only shares scenes with RDJ, yeah. who is also fantastic. But yeah. He's he's got one of the best lines in the movie, and like you know, I'm 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 gonna butcher it because I've only seen the film once. But you know, it's revealed throughout the film that RDJ is is sort of like a the villain of the film, if yes, you will. Yeah. Uh, he's been against Oppenheimer and getting this this guy taken care of, um, and he he's it's gotten to a point where he thinks that like you know it was Oppenheimer who turned all the scientists against him, including mm-hmm. Einstein, who we saw earlier, which we didn't know what he said. And and on his way out, uh, Alden says something along the lines of like, you know, we'll never really know what they were talking about, you know. And I, maybe he wasn't talking about you. They were probably talking about something more important. Yes. And I was just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like it just it hit you so because you're at the end of the film, everything's ramping up. You know mm-hmm. where it's going. And at this point, you've been, you know, sort of uh, taught to really hate. This, this Strauss character that that Robert yeah. Downey Jr. is playing, and so hearing that like slap to his his fucking face was just so so perfect. And and I say that, and really the whole movie is filled with performances like this. Mm-hmm. I it's it's mind blowing. Um, the one of Ray's favorite actors of all time is, is uh, Josh Hartnett. Um, you know somebody who was sort of a, a younger guy making his name in Hollywood. And then he went away for a while to, to, at the time he was saying he didn't want to be famous since then. He's kind of talked about, I was like, Oh yeah, it was mental health stuff. Um, you know, he was potentially going to be daredevil, you know, instead of Ben Affleck. Um, recently, uh, he's talking about, uh, he could have been Batman. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nolan Batman had re- recently sort of confirmed that it's like, it's not like he was literally the pick and then they went with someone else, but like there were conversations there. So like, this is a guy, and you know, I've I've watched a few films that Ray's a big fan of of, of with him in it. Um, and I respect her sort of choice of her loving him. Um, and then and then in this movie, I was like, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really good in this. I get it now. He was fantastic, and that is that is everybody, everybody in this movie. You know, I I, I feel like you should leave any kind of preconceived notions of any kind of actor at the door you know have you only ever seen the amazing spider-man 2 and you don't like dane dehan <laughs> well i'll tell you what forget it do you think matt damon tricked a bunch of people into buying crypto well don't worry because on this film he's great like <laughs> that's that's the move and you mentioned all the, the the sort of nolan tradition traditional people uh there's a wonderful moment uh where the everyone's enjoying a christmas party and uh, Kenneth Branagh is basically sort of like revealed. Revealed. In, oh, man. Uh, in front yeah. of all these people and everyone's cheering. And it's like, that's how I feel when I see <laughs> Kenneth Branagh in, yeah. a, in a Nolan film. You know, I feel like a room full of, of cheering people. So uh, by the time Gary Oldman shows up, yes. I was so enthralled in the movie. I had forgotten, you know, that he was in it or hadn't been in it basically mm-hmm. at that point. So when he shows up as the president, I was like, yeah, Gary Oldman. I had forgotten you know, Jason Clark was supposed to be like yeah. all those things. It was like such a delight because then they all just they they capture the scenes. It, whether it's one scene or or five, because some mm-hmm. of these people are just briefly in it. I'm, I'm just keep, keep going down the list. Casey Affleck. Yes, that was one of his best performances I'd seen. It was like so quiet yes. and scary and yeah. all these wonderful things. He's, he's oh perfectly uh, intimidating and smarmy, um, which. 
there might have been a reason that they cast him. But uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I I'd forgotten that he was in it entirely, and then because uh, you hear him speak without seeing his face, and I was like, "What the fuck is that, Casey Affleck?" And <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, and I had a similar thing with that with Gary Oldman, where you hear Truman's uh, announcement over the the loudspeaker. And I was like, oh, that's Gary Oldman. I can hear it. <laughs> I can hear it in his voice, the way he says things. Um, yeah. I'd forgotten Rami Malek was in the movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at first you're like, is this it? Is this yeah. all? <laughs> like <laughs> almost a non-speaking role. And then, yeah, he, he comes back later and it, it plays a very, very pivotal role in uh, in changing the tide. It, it's like Nolan knew that every character had at least one scene they needed to nail. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he chose whichever actor for that role. Sure. Um, I would I would say the same thing about Emily Blunt. Yeah. You know, um, there's so much of, of her where it's like, I mean, she's got some very pivotal stuff and yeah. her interactions with, with, with her husband and, and all those things is like, you're really not sure how to feel about her because it's like, oh, she left her husband for, for him and she almost seems like a neglectful sort of Parent, mother yeah. and all these things. Um and and then when we get into the the sort of trial sequence and she's being questioned that she has this amazing scene of of her being questioned about being a communist and she like completely spins the whole thing around and she it it's like it's the kind of moment that you wish would be like a YouTube upload of like Emily Blunt badass scene <laughs> because it is right like yes. it is it is her most powerful she, scene she chops Jason Clark's character yeah down to size and yeah, that's it's a really satisfying moment and a bit of an emotional moment, like seeing her stand up for her husband as well in in that sense because she's mm-hmm. brought in as a, as a witness, and uh, because throughout the trial portion of the film, um, like when uh, Oppenheimer and and his uh, legal team are discussing it, she's constantly saying that she believes that it's Strauss, and like why won't you fight this? Like you're just sitting there and. We kind yeah. of learn later that he knows it's something that he can't win, Oppenheimer. Um, he knows he can't win this trial, so he just has to kind of go along with it. It's, it he knows it's a kangaroo court. And uh, it's, it's kind of... Uh, we see him talking again to uh, Einstein. <laughs> he has a point, you know. He just shows up. <laughs> um, he, he comes out of the shadows like, like <laughs> Batman showing up back in the city in Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, I mean, yeah, like the cast you could talk about forever because there's so many people in it. I mean, someone like a, um, David Crumholtz, you know, it's got a great role as well. Um, so real, right? Like that's, you can feel that as a real person, every single one of his lines, you're like, gosh, this is what movies are about. It's like these wonderful little performances where every line everything feels like it was like this was written for you specifically yeah. i mean with uh benny safty right yeah same thing oh, man, he's great where it's this. like this performance is so you like yeah. the, everything about this is just so perfectly done and timed and it, it's just it's it's great i i then like I, we said at the top it's just i i really have no negative things to say about this because i was just mm-hmm. so blown away by how it was it was done um and i i I mean it really it really does come down to ultimately killian murphy Mm -hmm. being this such a strong 
believable person yeah where you believe all the things where you know there's so much like talk about his character right in the film mm-hmm. uh there's because people don't trust him people don't like him he's a little bit of a like he's, he's a bit ego driven he doesn't really play well with others yeah um, and naive get wonderful... and a little bit to the world we we kind of learn as well yeah yeah he, he almost wants to just like play it by the rules he expects without expecting any kind of anything else mm-hmm. like he's he, he thinks it's like, well, this is how things should be done. So it's probably how they are done without considering how things actually are done. Yeah. Um, and, and we get a lot of scenes depicted of like, oh, here he is from his point of view. And then, you know, from, from sort of the RDJ role, we get to mm-hmm. see it played out from his point of view and how he perceives him. And it's almost like you almost get like why someone would hate him in yeah. a way because he does seem to be like impeding this progress that needs to be happen or needs to be happen that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a very, I don't know, a very strong, uh, thorough performance in every, in every way. Um, there's yeah. the, the part where he sort of learns that Florence Pugh is, has potentially taken her life, mm-hmm. you know, the, from what he reads of it. And it's, it's another powerful scene between him and Emily Blunt. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just, it's it's one of those things where it's like ah no notes mm-hmm. you know like, yeah. like with with Barbie which is fine you know it's fun to discuss a film and kind of look into it and see what could be and for better or worse I just don't have any of those comments for a movie like this because I was just so in love from start to finish yeah same um, we see like going back to Oppenheimer's uh, uh, kind of like naivete about the world because he. He goes to all these rallies for all these different causes, including communism, and he's never a member himself, though his brother and his partner, um, who was uh, was also someone I recognized, Emma Dumont. She was uh, she was Polaris in the Gifted TV show. Um, I'm always happy to see her. Um, but uh, yeah, and but so he goes to all these things because he's interested in them. Like he's read these books on communism but he's not a communist himself um but at the same time he gives his brother the advice of like don't parade this stuff around because you know for example um uh josh hartnett's character like he kind of indicates like not his side of the faculty they don't agree with it so be careful and but then he goes and does all these things himself it's so yeah he's, he's he's kind of reckless and naive in that sense and uh, yeah a tad egotistical that he thinks he can get away with it because he's brilliant and you know in a lot of cases like when matt damon is going through all of these negatives that uh you know you're a womanizer and you're egotistical and you're blah 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 blah, blah and he says like you didn't mention that i'm brilliant it's like well that is a given <laughs> you know so yeah I, I thought that was interesting um because it's when you they don't really get into his childhood in the movie but like he was a genius as a child as well we see him when he's uh uh, is was it cambridge um yeah i believe so yeah with the jarvis from the the (laughs) (laughs) yeah we see james darcy and kenneth branagh together again from dunkirk Um, yeah yeah he almost dies uh yeah yeah he poisons his apple it's like what possesses someone to do that? And we learned later, he's like, I actually liked him very much. You know, it's just, oh my God. 
So Oh man. And then later when we find out that he's like written a sort of letter condemning uh his presence in the sort of physics world over in America. Yeah. And then we get that shot of him taking a taking a bite, bite of, an of an apple. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh yeah. and then yeah, another classic funny bit of him grabbing that apple to make sure Kenneth Brandon doesn't eat it. Yeah. And he simply goes, Wormhole. Wormhole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, uh, I guess, if, to talk about criticism, and this isn't, this, we'll talk about this. Criticism I have seen is with Florence Pugh's character, where she's, you know, most of her scenes, she's uh, topless. And mm-hmm. um, my argument against that being a negative, and I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not going anywhere pervy with this, I, though it sounds like a setup, but um, that's what she kind of represents in Oppenheimer's life. That's really all they had right. in common was this attraction because he didn't he didn't want to be part of her world entirely and she was very dismissive of him trying to be a romantic and all these other things and like we learned that they're married but we see no proposal or wedding or anything it's so sterile their relationship almost beyond this physical attraction that they have which is you know he he cheats on emily blunt with her um and uh yeah, I, th- I actually thought that was interesting. We really only see her in moments like that. Like, they're having a conversation about where they are in their lives, and they're both just mm-hmm. naked, like, sitting across the room from one another. Um, so, yeah, I guess my argument to, like, well, you know, we, we haven't had nudity in a Nolan film before, but he just paraded Florence Pugh around. It's like, well, there's, there is a purpose for it. So, um, yeah. 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 I think it's it depends on how it's being presented, and that's that's how it is. It's mm-hmm. this idea of this the definition of sort of a toxic relationship. They both want something, but they're not right for each other. But at the same time, they can't give each other up. You know, like even though it's pretty clear that he's like, yeah, um, you knew I was never right for you when he's leaving her for Blunt, mm-hmm. um, and she's broken up about it. Even though, as you said, she seems to have denied any kind of normalcy in what people would consider a traditional relationship. Um, yeah. And that's why he's so uh, racked with guilt when he learns of her death, because it's like, well, is it my fault yeah. that this happened because I left her? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you can't put that upon yourself, which you could argue is sort of a, a glimpse into what he will feel in the future. You yeah. know, is it my fault? And it's like, well, you didn't you didn't kill her and you didn't kill all those people. And it's like, well, I made the bomb. I was there when they were talking about where to to, to send it. Mm-hmm. It's like, how responsible are you? So there's a conversation to be had about that as well and yeah. how that really reflects the, the character's sort of choices and the character's feelings. And I, I, I mean, I can understand it, but at the same time, my opinion is that it's whatever services the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, sometimes this is what services the story. Um and especially in a film when there's so many people that have so little things to do, you know, uh, uh, Josh Peck is yeah. in the film and it's amazing because he's barely in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of many scientists in this, in this group here, mm-hmm. but he also is in one of the most important scenes in the entire oh, movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, it's, it's kind of amazing, right? Because you almost, it, part, part of the stuff, especially with this one in terms of a Nolan film, you almost do kind of feel like you're like a sports fan. Like, this is like, oh man, a, a guy from 
like if your if your childhood is your hometown mm-hmm. where it's like gosh i used to watch this guy on tv you yeah. know like this is josh from drake and josh yes. this one in particular and it's like here he is giving a performance in a christopher nolan film mm-hmm. you know involved in one of the most important pieces of of you know history global history not just american or anything and it's it's incredible you yeah. know like you feel almost like a sense of pride for watching some of these people you've watched forever um yeah putting these performances in and i think that's it is that this really brought out like i said there's not a single bad performance in the entire group there's not someone that stands out as like oh you shouldn't have done that voice or oh you shouldn't have done that character like because not every character is the same no josh hartnett plays like a very straight-laced american man yes who as you said is is pretty you know doesn't see eye to eye with his unionization of like the students and the teachers and the faculty and all that stuff but he's also looking out for Oppenheimer when it comes to that stuff. You know, he warns him about the people that are coming and yeah. what they're going to do. And Keep it out of the He's never and, against him. Yeah. The, there's that great stuff between him and uh, Matt Damon of, like, remember we talked about it. He's like, oh, don't worry. I remember. He's like, Ed, I said I remember. It doesn't mean I was going to do it. And yeah. like, you know, it doesn't mean I agree. It, it, yeah, he just gets a big cheer and everything. It's like, yeah there's so many different types of people and different things and puzzle pieces that are needed here and, and everyone does their part and it kind of, and it, it, like I said, it, it sounds so like artsy and, and mm-hmm. stop talking about it where it is. It almost does have that sort of theatrical play feel to it. Right. Cause like when you're in a play, there's so many active pieces moving that you can see mm-hmm. in a movie. You just see the actors, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't see the crew mm-hmm. and the, the stage hands and the lights and the sound. But like when you're you're in a play, if you're in it, and even sometimes when you're in the audience, whether you're supposed to or not, you can see the gears moving. Sure. And yeah. that's kind of what it is here, without actually seeing, you know, the 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 grips and the mic operators and all those people. Everyone feels like they're a piece in a in a big moving machine, and everyone's doing their part. And however big or small or whatever, you're watching all these people move to a point that gets us where we need to go. Um, and you can compare that to a train if you'd like to tie it into the whole like musical elements of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, this big ramping up tension, this ramping of sound. You know, it's all these pieces moving in tandem to to get us where we need to be. So it's like everything about this movie is, is can be tied together. I'm expecting a billion video essays on it because yes. if I'm able to spout all this shit and I don't do video essays, <laughs> imagine what someone who knows what they're talking about can mm-hmm. can say about this movie. Um, it's it's great, and it, you know, I guess you know, as as people who who like Tenet, um, I this is far more accessible, even yes. though it is a very dreary three hour film where you're sure. gonna walk out of it being like the world's doomed. Um, it's it's far more of an understandable. It's his most understandable movie, arguably, because the whole movie's <laughs> talking. <laughs> yes, uh, and which I, I gather that some people have said like, oh, it's a it's a very talky movie, and it's true. Like Nolan does action movies, you know, like predominantly most of his movies have been action films so if you it's apples and oranges when you compare tenet to oppenheimer in terms of what type of movie that you like but yeah oppenheimer i think was uh, a better um representation of nolan's style of filmmaking and and uh, was a lot more of a cohesive story while still being a non-linear story um the it's it's interesting that you mentioned earlier like the black and white uh stuff being from Robert Downey's character's perspective, um, like we see earlier in the film, um, where it's the court hearing where Oppenheimer disagrees with Strauss's 
uh, opinion on uh, isotopes, I think. Um, and right. and he, he, he kind of just he really makes a fool out of him. And from Strauss's point of view, Downey's character, he, he kind of like laughs it off like, oh, well, you know, that's Oppenheimer for you. And then the next time we see it, and it's from more of the perspective from Oppenheimer's where he's just giving him a death stare. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know what else to, to really say at this because it's just going to be us repeating it. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just remember point, a scene it's... and talk about how great it is. Like, we haven't even mentioned Jack Quaid playing the bongos. But, uh... Oh my God! I, little stuff, right? Yeah. Like when they're preparing for the the Trinity test, and and Safdie's like covering his face in like sunscreen and shit. <laughs> he's just rubbed and in. He's like, eh. yeah, and then he's you know Quaid's sitting in the car. It's like, you know, glass protects it from the UVs. Yeah, <laughs> like this little moment. Oh, so much stuff. Yeah. So I mean, the, the we didn't even talk about the bomb itself and almost how like oh yeah, like watching a fucking those music screensavers from the the 2000s it felt mm. like it was just like i don't know wa- watching someone's like visual soundscape kind of deal it was uh yeah. i mean yeah it it's just the, it's just the greatest movie ever made and like <laughs> it, you should probably go see it if you've got a few hours to kill you know yeah i i don't uh i'm not one to be like this will be a front runner at the oscars or things like that especially this early in the year i might talk about sure. that when we're in oscar season cuz that's kind of more on people's minds but uh yeah this is one that you know we'll be talking about uh in you know whatever it is seven months six seven months time so uh, i i would certainly hope so yeah you know i can think of a lot of categories that this would need to be done and and it also helps that it's got the historical value to it which the the academy likes so you know uh but hey maybe you know we have the oscars it'll be to an empty room because nobody can can show up well uh we'll, yeah we'll let's, find out let's hope uh yeah this has been something else i guess we've been chronicling throughout this uh this summer period is the writer strike now the sag strike and uh i hope everyone gets what they uh what they're owed mm-hmm. yeah I, hope... I mean did you mm-hmm. did you hear about a24 um how they will be allowed to Yes. Um, have like continue work because they agreed to the terms. Yes. They're like, yeah, we'll 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 get that done. And it's like, oh, so it's that easy. Yes, exactly. Like a, you know, a twenty four can do it. Yeah. I something tells me Disney and Warner Brothers and all these yeah. other people maybe they could do it too. So there's hope. And yeah. you know what? At the end of the day, if that means we're only going to get a 24 films next year <laughs> and no Marvel or Fine. fast and furious or whatever. The yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The fact mm. that it's good that independent films can continue because they're not part of what this is even striking, but uh, yeah. yeah um, it's that, that video of Ron Perlman is oh my something God. else. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, love that man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anthony, where can people find you online? You can find me at Anthony Lantern on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I was going to say Facebook as if that was the thing that mattered at all. Good Lord. Uh, Letterboxd, go ahead and check that out. Um, I will be having a new video by the time this is out, mm-hmm. Anthony Reviews, where Anthony Reviews 
Um, so yeah, by, by the time this is out, it, it will definitely be out. It's a review of some of the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles figures from the, the hit new Seth Rogen film. So even mm. though we were just talking about this wonderful piece of art, um, I still will be talking about Plastic Toys, the latest version of the Ninja <laughs> Turtles uh, over on my YouTube channel. So I'd recommend checking that out. It's just a, it's just a simple review. It's, I think, six minutes long. So please check that out if you can. Um, also, we, we, we often forget to mention because we don't like to hammer it home to our five listeners. But hey, if you could, you know, leave a review <laughs> on whatever version of the podcast you listen to, whether it's Apple or Spotify or whatever, you know, if it helps, pretend you're writing a review for Oppenheimer. Yeah, mm-hmm. Or if you didn't like it as much as Barbie, review Barbie or, you know, Mission Impossible, whatever you could give a five star review. And replace the characters' names with ours. There you go. Go ahead and, and let us let us know because we would really appreciate it. But uh, Kirk, uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kirk Beatty. In the scenario where you replace our names with character names, I want to be Florence Pugh. Ooh. <laughs>